evening and welcome to this episode of the Barry Trump Show. I am so excited and honored to have as my guest tonight, Ellie Belshi. Ellie, thank you so much for being here. It, it's great to see you outside of the context of your show. Uh, and it's it's been a bit of a wild ride. Yeah. But let's, let's keep it to the last few months because otherwise... Yeah. Otherwise knows? we need several of these episodes. Exactly. Yeah, we would need an entire limited series or unlimited series, as the case may be. Um, But, you know, a couple of things I want to talk to you today have to do with your uh, exemplary work in Ukraine and um, how the situation in Ukraine plays out in America, how it doesn't. Um, But let's start with uh, the the most obvious. Um, The midterms were quite something. Uh, and I'm I'm just eager to get your take on the framing leading up to them, yep. the results, and the potential fallout. So I think the biggest part of the framing leading up to them, which is interesting and and uh, sort of a learning opportunity for us, is that we measure presidential popularity a certain way, and we've been measuring it the same way for years and years and years. So going into this election, we knew that the measure of Joe Biden's popularity was around 44, 45%, depending on what polls you looked at, right. which which was relatively low compared to recent presidents. So it was not meant to help him. In, in the case where the president, uh, the party that holds the White House would typically lose seats in the midterm elections unless there were some unusual event like after 9-11 when uh, George W. Bush didn't, um, you would think that the lower popularity levels of the president would contribute to a greater loss. And what I'm realizing, it's a, I'm an economics guy. It's a little like GDP. You can tell people what GDP growth is because it's the only measure we have of all the things we produce and, and sell in the economy. But sometimes it's not reflective of what's really happening out there. So yeah. you can generally think that Joe Biden isn't exactly the president you'd want him to be, isn't perhaps as robust as you'd like him to be, although his schedule belies that, um, might be a little old for the job. Whatever you think about him registers as your approval or disapproval. But when it comes down to a binary choice of, in this particular elections, uh, Republicans versus Democrats, or people who uh, are working against democracy versus people who are working for democracy, or uh, a party that has no platform and seems to be enthralled to a, a particular man versus a party that's done some things that you might not think are important, like the CHIPS Act or whatever the case is, but mm-hmm. real things have happened. What happens is that popularity rating goes into the back of your head. It's not a forefront application. It's a background application. It's saying, all right, I don't think he's all that but he's actually pretty good. Now, I think what history is going to demonstrate, Mary, is that that Joe Biden ends up 15 years from now and 20 years from now looking very different. He ends up looking a little more like Jimmy Carter does, where, you know, at the time, everybody thought Jimmy Carter was not a good president. And it turns right. out that he did some remarkable things and he subsequently did more remarkable things after he was president. Or George H.W. Bush, who Uh, presided over the reunification of Eastern Europe, which just didn't feel like a tangible and important thing to a lot of people at the time and resulted in something really, really massive later down the line. He was really ended up being a a more statesmanlike character. The bottom line here is Joe Biden doesn't have that kind of time. So people have to register right now that A, he's actually a really good president. B, he's really effective. C, he's the only president since Ronald Reagan who has brought America's chief adversary to their knees in Ukraine. And D, if Donald Trump is actually running for president, like he says he is, there are a lot of people who say, I'd rather have somebody else be the Democratic nominee, or I'd rather have somebody other than Joe Biden. But a lot of people are going to go through all the options, and they're going to arrive back at Joe Biden. Yeah, and we'll we'll get to that (laughs) in a few minutes. But I want to get back to the economy, because as you say, you are an economy guy. and, And one of the great services you provide for those of us who may not understand uh, what that the economy actually is, you know, it's not a monolith, right? (laughs) It's not one uh, metric. And I think one of the great disservices that a lot of the mainstream media did in this uh, running up to this midterm election was present the economy as if it were two things, high gas prices and inflation. Yes. And also saying it's those two things without, explaining or putting in context the reason why Why it is right exactly so 
The other thing that got left out of the conversation, again, not 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 your conversations, uh, which is why I think one of the many reasons your work is so important, Thank is you. that other things were pulled out and and separated from the economy, which you know always ranks almost always ranks almost one, almost, yeah. um, and pretending that things like abortion rights and democracy aren't also economic issues. Correct. Correct. You're 100 percent right. So there were there were several things at play. The first thing I think for people who struggle with being comfortable talking about the economy is that they think I don't really know numbers and I don't really know math and things like that. The economy is not science. It's art. Right. It is right. all things that happen that cause you to behave a certain way. You, your employer, your company. Uh, all of us writ large. So that's why I, I wish if we had back in the days when we decided to teach economics, we had thought about that. We had decided, let's just teach economy as human behavior, human yeah. behavior around the resources that you have, which in most people's case is money or don't have or don't have enough of. So number one, if you were to take a snapshot of the economy right now, which is, by the way, better than it was a week ago. But if we were to take a snapshot of the economy on the day before the election, what you have was historically high inflation that was trending down inflation that is not as high in the United States as it is in about 100 other countries. Yeah. So to the extent that there were Republicans blaming Joe Biden and the Democrats for inflation, you'd have to sort of come to the belief that Joe Biden and Democrats rule the world are globalists as Breitbart likes to say, because how is Netherlands inflation, uh, UK inflation today, 11.1%. It's a historic right. number. France, Turkey, well, Turkey's, Turkey's. 80%. Venezuela's yeah. way out there. But let's just talk about countries that, that aren't like Mexico, um, like Germany, like Spain, like 100% of the countries in the EU. So first of all, Inflation's really a problem and it's really a thing and it should have been debated properly, but Republicans blame Democrats for it and then also offered no solution to it because the difficulty about fighting inflation is that there's one way to do it and it includes raising interest rates and it's unpleasant and it's hard and the Fed's really been doing it and that's a different discussion for a different time, but the government's doing exactly what the government should be doing about it and, mm -hmm. and Republicans had no other answer. But take inflation out of the equation for a second. You have remarkably low unemployment, right? We used to, in, in, in economics, we used to say 5% unemployment is considered full employment, meaning everybody who wants a job has a job. We're way below that. Yeah. Go to a restaurant and try to get served today. Um, you, something that I used to go into, a, I used to go to Joe and the Juice here and ask for a turkey sandwich and it would take four minutes to get it. Now it takes 15 or 20 minutes because there's one person serving because they can't hire a second person. Hmm. Look at wages, which we used to struggle to say, uh, federal wages are $7.25 an hour. People wanted them at $10. Then they said $12. Even Republicans came around to $10 and $12. Then Bernie Sanders and others wanted $15 an hour. We're basically at 15 bucks an hour without any legislation. The market has caused wages to go up. I understand that's the chief component of inflation right now, but it's really good for wage earners. Right. Take a look at spending. Way up. Uh, you know, uh, uh, gross domestic product is 2.3% or something. You have to be below zero to be in a recession. So in fact, if you look at the economy writ large, it's actually pretty good. But if most of your money goes toward buying gas and eggs and meat and cheese, it feels very, very immediate to you. So yep. what we need to do is not discount the fact that people are hurt by inflation. It's a terrible, terrible thing. But it's not these guys' fault. We are working to solve it. And other parts of the economy are doing well. This is your best opportunity to get a job probably in 15 years. And so that's why we have to have nuanced conversations about the economy. The problem in elections is there's nuanced nothing, right? It's all bumper stickers. Yeah. And there, was, exactly. there were complaints that the Democrats didn't message around that as well as they should have. And I certainly took on the, the complaint that... Uh, Republicans were messaging about it quite effectively, blaming it on them. So I would go out of my way to show charts of all the places in the world that had, uh, you know, higher inflation than than America had, and say, "How do you think that's Joe Biden's problem? Are you going to throw all the bums out all around the world because of it? Because it is just a thing." So the economy, this is a failing, right? We don't talk about it enough, and we don't talk about it well enough, and we don't make it accessible enough for people to not get hoodwinked. But Mary, on Tuesday night last week, they didn't get hoodwinked. Americans were able to hold two thoughts in their own mind. I don't like these high prices. I also don't like anti-democratic forces trying to steal our vote and do things like that. And to your final point, if you have a baby that you weren't planning to have, it, have 
That's the biggest economic thing that will ever happen to you. That will take a woman out of the workforce and it will be best case scenario, a quarter million dollars of their money through the course of their life. That's the best and lowest case scenario. All right. So yeah. that's a whole lot of other problems. So telling me that 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 I had this debate with a Republican and a Democrat in uh, Michigan where the uh, the woman uh, who was an abortion rights activist, Democrat, said, uh, you know, I think abortion is an economic issue. And the and the man who was a Republican said that's a luxury for suburban moms to think about. Yikes. Wow. It's not a luxury. The ability to have an abortion wow. is not actually luxury. And by the way, we missed the whole conversation about it's OK if you don't like abortion. Like this, we're in a pluralistic society. You can not like abortion. You can never have an abortion and never never avail yourself of one. But don't make the argument that it's not an economic decision for someone else. Yeah, it's such a good point. And uh, that's also incredibly offensive that that what that person said. But, you know, a lot of a lot of what's happening uh, in that in the context of that issue is is really offensive. Um, but <laughs> the other thing, first of all, love Joe and the Juice. Um, very fond of their turmeric shot. It's very good. <laughs> and I'm willing to wait for it. Um, <laughs> but one of the problems with uh, pretty much anything that is uh, political is the extent to which these things get treated like um, both sides have legitimate points, right? And you mentioned that the Republicans, again, continue to be better at messaging than the Democrats, unfortunately. Uh, they they hammer Democrats on the economy, on inflation. As you said, they have no solutions. But what always seems to get let, left out of the conversation, and again, it's as if by mentioning it, you're biased somehow, is that the only party that has actual solutions, the only party that has legislation, not to do anything about inflation because there's only so much you can do, but to right. mitigate the effects of inflation right, is the Democratic right. Party. Right. So this is the important part. If you go back to the beginning of COVID, two things were happening simultaneously. One is the Federal Reserve said, huh, if money gets blocked up, if banks stop lending money to companies, companies uh, dry up, they lose their cash flow, they lay people off and they uh, will have a big problem. Right. So so in America, central reserves, the, the central bank and central banks all around the world said, let's keep money flowing to companies. That's going to be the number one thing in places like Denmark. They actually paid corporations to pay their staff. If you kept your staff on uh, payroll, even if they had no work to do and had to be had to stay home, the, the government actually paid for it. it was an interesting experiment. But basically, in the rest of the world, we said we'll make sure companies get money. Then there was an effort to get real people money. Right. And that hung around Congress, and everybody was wringing their hands about, you know what happens if you give people who are paycheck to paycheck money? They use it on drugs, and they use it on entertainment. I mean, it's just ridiculous, old-fashioned welfare queen BS. Right. But my point is, our institutions are built to make sure companies don't fail if they need money, and the wealthy have money. And I'm, I'm not a socialist. I'm a I'm an economics journalist. I'm, I'm, I probably am more conservative than I am liberal about economics. But we don't have systems by which people who are subject to these economic forces, i.e. recession and inflation, can be helped in an easy way by the rest of us. We save banks all the time. We save corporations all the time. We make sure the money flow between banks never, ever stops. And the Federal Reserve is able to do that without any political interference whatsoever. They don't have to answer to anyone to do it. When the Fed raises rates, it does it on, on its own. When it cuts rates, it does it on its own. But for humans, it has to go through Congress. And boy, do we does every human have to prove, I really need that money to feed my kid. I really need to do that. So in the case of inflation, it's a massive tax on people. If yeah. you are someone who's working paycheck to paycheck, you can't really afford that your grocery bill is now 10% higher than it was. Your gasoline prices are coming down, but it's still they're still high. And we don't have mechanisms to help them. That is always politicized. There's no politicization to helping banks and corporations, with minor exceptions, like in the 2008 uh, recession, where they had that, that big bill, which actually turned out to work really well. And, we and that's because big, it was a Democrat. <laughs> right. And we bailed out the auto industry, and everybody hated that, but it actually worked out well. The bottom line is actually when you give people money when they're in trouble, especially people or companies that have to spend that money to stay afloat, 
the return to the government tends to be very, very, very high. We made money on the auto bailout. We made money on the on the TARP. We made money on all that kind of stuff. But God forbid you give people money or you help them out with child care or elder care or the things they need that was all part of the Build Back Better bill that Republicans wanted no part of. Then they finally agreed to the second bill. Uh, well, some of them did. Uh, most of them voted against it, but they loved it. They all yeah. they all campaign on it. They That's talk right. about it. While at the other side of their mouth, they're talking about the fact that these are the things that are causing inflation. So, yes, the Republican Party is a party without a platform. And I wish that weren't true, Mary, because I don't believe in single party states. I would right. like to have debates about where interest rates should be, where wages should be, what kind of health care we should be providing to people, how you help people when they're facing inflation. And ultimately, we may have a recession as a result of this. What will we do then? How will we keep that recession as short as possible? The one thing to remember about both inflation and recession, they're really bad for most people. They're really good for the top 5%. That's right. They're super good for the top 1%, and they're amazingly good for the top 0.1%, because those people don't have to borrow money. Mm -hmm. They have money. They can deploy it. When the stock market goes down, they back up the truck and buy stocks. When home prices go down, like they're going down right now, they go in and buy houses. They don't have to struggle with mortgage rates at 6 or 7%, because they don't need the mortgage to buy the house. So you right. buy a cheap house. And you sit on it till the price, because the prices will go up. Yeah. Stock market will go up again. Home prices will go up again. This is America. This is a, a place that everybody in the world wants to come and live. And so that's where we are right now, that we need two parties. We need debate. We need the best ideas possible. And it's just not happening. It's so true that because I, I listen, I, 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 uh, I'm a liberal, very liberal, progressive, um, but I'm also a pragmatist. And I think part of me feels that the country would be better off if for a solid 12 years, the Democrats had control of everything because there's so much to be fixed, like so much damage has been done right. uh, that we need to fix. But that's not tenable uh, for the long term. As you say, we need... We need input from from uh, different sectors of the population. We need robust debate. But that also can't happen, though, if one party, as you said, is a party without policy. But as we're learning, as we've learned, uh, much to our chagrin, is a party that's actually anti-democratic. How right. do we? What do we do about that? Because honestly, Ali, it feels like. Um, you know, two things. Uh, now, obviously, it's different uh, a week out from last week's election. But before before that, I think we could safely say that things were actually worse in many ways, in many important ways than they were after Joe Biden won in 2020. Sure. Um, right. And uh, the Republican Party has continued to go down this very dark, very dark path. And. Whatever they're saying today, I think it's safe to assume that they are going to do what the most expedient thing if they think it's going to help them retain power. Yes. And at the moment, that looks to be like appeasing Donald Trump. What do we do about that? Sort of looks like it, right? I've sort of been yeah. monitoring since Donald Trump announced his election and I'm a, his his candidacy, and I'm I'm actually a bit surprised by the tepid response from a lot of people, um, including Republicans, uh, yeah. who are for the moment at least, and maybe this is just the shadow of Tuesday's election, like like the days after January sixth were a shadow that you know once the shadow passes, everybody's mm -hmm. back on board. Yep. But I I I think you're right in distinguishing the. A party without a platform is one problem. A party with what seems to be a platform that that counters democracy is a bigger one. Now, this is where it's important to take a wider view. And that is the view that I've had for the last several months, particularly because I was in Eastern Europe and, and in Ukraine and starting to study autocracy and dictatorship. And I learned two things. One is democracies on retreat, generally speaking, in the world. Yeah. Right. There's more autocracy and dictatorship coming in than not. And generally speaking, it's not someone who comes into power and eliminates democracy. It's people themselves who vote for politicians who have this Donald Trumpish, I alone can fix it view, mm -hmm. but you got to give me all the power. Right. There can be no compromise. I will fix it. So people actually vote for these people. 
And the vote never gets taken away. Ruth Ben Giat and I talk about this a lot, right? We think that as long as we can go out and cast our ballot um, on Tuesday, November 8th, and in the, whatever elections we are, we're good. Right. But that's not how it works. What happens if you look at countries like Iran and Russia and a whole lot of others, they have elections. Hungary. Then it start, they have, Hungary has elections, but you start to not be able to be a candidate if you don't have a particular view or it becomes very hard for you to do so. Or, the, or in the United States, the Republican Party infrastructure will not support a challenger to yeah. Donald Trump. So your, your vote in Iran never, ever, 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 ever went away. Under fundamentalist Muslims, your vote never went away. Your vote in Russia doesn't go away, but God help you if you vote the wrong direction. And by the way, God help you if your neighborhood, when they tally up the votes, 15% of the population voted against uh, Putin's regime, they'll bulldoze the houses. So you don't do it. You, 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 you vote. And by the way, you show up to vote. So these countries all brag in those referendums in the Russian controlled areas of Ukraine. Turnout was like 96, 98 percent, whatever. And the, the, the votes were all 98 percent to two. I don't even know why they bother faking the two percent. Iran is the same way. Turnout is very high because they, the police check you to make sure you yeah. turn out. I like high turnout. But my point is the vote is not the thing you have to worry about. A lot of Americans feel secure in the fact that we still have the vote. They make it a little hard for some people in Texas and Georgia to vote. But fundamentally, they can do it. We'll vote. No, no. They change things around the edges. They tamper with the results of the elections or they tell you that they're tampering with the results of the elections so that you don't think that the, the, the system matters. They run candidates like they did in Arizona and in Pennsylvania and in Michigan who ha have no other credentials except to deny the last election and tell you that they'll do that for the next election. You end up with a secretary of state in a state like Indiana, who is an election denier. Mary, I can honestly say I didn't know the name of a single secretary of state in America three years ago. Just didn't. Didn't occur to me. Why would I even know them? Wasn't entirely clear what they did. Now they will decide the outcome of elections. That's Almost right. every one of them lost, but but a guy, an election denier in Indiana won. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to have to pay a lot of attention to Indiana in the next election to say, are these free and fair elections? Do we need election monitors like Jimmy Carter going around to elections in America like we send around the world? So that's what people need to worry about. We did not dodge a bullet when Joe Biden was elected. We did not dodge a bullet because January 6th didn't succeed, and we did not dodge a bullet on November 8th, 2022. The bullets are still all flying out there. They just haven't hit their mark, and the shooters are getting substantially more sophisticated about how to hit their targets. And uh, again, we, are, we continue to be in this position where the next election becomes the most important election, uh, which is exhausting. <laughs> Yeah, it totally is. Frankly, the sky is falling. Except it is. It is it's actually falling. And that creates a situation, a very dangerous situation, in which it becomes easier for those uh, maligned forces to normalize uh, the attacks, to normalize the uh, continuing erosion of our institutions and people's faith in elections, et cetera. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't really like to talk about Donald a lot uh, because I, I don't believe he's the problem. I believe the uh, party that continues to empower him is the problem, mm -hmm. but the normalization of him is also a problem. I mean, we were, <laughs> We're looking at the fact that a man who uh, started the big lie because he lost so badly in 2020, his ego couldn't handle it, and his party outperformed him, which just made, made it worse. Uh, a man who incited an insurrection against his own government and continues to spread both the big lie and to justify the behavior of the insurrectionist was allowed to announce his candidacy candidacy right. for the presidency yeah and i yes it was i don't know if it was surprising necessarily but the tepidness of the response uh i think speaks to some exhaustion i think it speaks to some anger about how poorly the republicans fared in the midterm but you know as soon as donald starts making threats or as soon as uh his numbers start going up or what have you you know they'll snap back into line sure they will, sure they will. And they will be, he will be uh, completely um, enabled and, um, what's the word I'm looking for, supported by a media that seems, not again across the board, but generally speaking, incapable 
of describing exactly who he is yep. and why this should not be allowed to happen. And and part of that, Ellie, is that I think, um, although I, my, my faith in this has been restored a little bit since uh, last week, but remember, tens and tens of millions of people voted for election deniers, voted yes. for people who who claimed that they were going to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Absolutely. Right? Uh, so I think, yes, democracy, once again, we we snatched democracy from the jaws of autocracy. But as you just said, it's still a very tenuous uh, relationship we have to our democracy. And part of the problem is I think people don't quite understand what it means and what our relationship is to it. Democracy is not an end. It's 100%. a process, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. You Because you're born, if you're born here, you're born with your citizenship. So you don't have to go through any contests or jump through any hoops to right. figure out what it is. Those of us who are naturalized, um, when I was naturalized in 2015, you go into the courthouse and they take away your phone. You can't have your phone in a courthouse, but they do give you a constitution. Mm. And so I read the constitution. You can read it in, a, in the waiting time that I had. I think I could read it about three times. Oh, and wow. it suits in it, right? It reminds you that, all right, there's, and plus you have to do a test to become a citizen. It's an easy test, but you have to think about these things that are important. Yeah. And, and the, the fight for liberty and, and democracy and freedom in the United States is too far removed. That's why being in Eastern Europe and, 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 Ukraine earlier this year was very helpful to me because it's not removed to them. It's live. If you want to know why these Ukrainians are beating the Russians, it's because it's live. Their actual democracy is slipping away. And, and the Poles and the Latvians and the Lithuanians, they're all looking at the same things, think, thinking we're one invasion away. We're, we're, we're 40 miles away from democracy being taken. Now, that's not going to happen in America. We're not going to have missiles flying and somebody else's tanks coming. But it's almost more dangerous. It's yeah. our own tanks. Yeah. It's our own military. It's our own people who are turning on us because for all of the the important people who didn't win, the important deniers who didn't win, meaning the governors, the secretary of states, the Senate candidates, although some did, Ron Johnson is a denier. He won. Yeah. Lots of lots of them got reelected. Um, one secretary of state did. Lots and lots of people at lower levels did because yeah. Americans think it's benign. Right. Lots of people think it's benign. The, the, the Ron DeSantis's of the world are sitting here thinking, Republicans didn't en masse refute election denialism. I mean, I spoke to people in Michigan and in Arizona and in Pennsylvania who absolutely did, right? Josh Shapiro won in Pennsylvania because Republicans supported him against Doug Mastriano. Yeah. Um, Katie Hobbs and Adrian Fontes, who became the uh, Secretary of State and, and, and key people in Arizona, won because, because they're proud of their Republicanism, right? They're proud of John McCain. They're proud of Barry right. Goldwater. They're proud of being independent thinkers. They're proud of being conservatives. They didn't want this BS of election denial out there. But en masse, that's not what Republican voters did, which means there's still a seed that can be germinated of, I'm still going to go down this road. I'm still going to doubt elections. I'm still going to seed the doubt. And we have such close elections in this country that that's all you need to do. It'll cause some people to sit on their hands and not go to the ballots. Some people will be intimidated because guys with guns stand outside of, of ballot boxes. Some people say, my vote's not going to get counted. It's not going to matter anyway. In New York, people do that all the time, right? They yeah. think, oh, well, the Democrat's going to win. Well, it was you know, it was going to be a close election for governor. That's, that's right. It in was New York. Important. You can't sit on, you can't ever do that. Democracy is a cactus. It's not a hard plant to maintain, but it needs some love. You cannot stick a cactus in your bottom drawer for 20 years and hope it's alive. You have to do a little bit of work. It needs sun. It needs a little bit of water from time to time if things have been too dry for it. That's what we need to do. Everybody needs to, to understand that they have responsibility for a little part of this cactus or a little cactus on their own. The other thing people need to re remember is they say to me all the time, wow, you've got a front row seat to such historic times. And I think to myself, this isn't a front row seat. I'm in the arena. And yeah. so are all of you. We're all in this arena ourselves. We're not watching this game. We're, you are in the battle. So are you a foot soldier for democracy or are you not? I'm not asking you your opinion on what minimum wage should be or how health care should be distributed in this country. I, I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, uh, Peter Meyer, uh, Joe Walsh, 
all of these people and I are in exactly the same arena right now. We are fighting on the same side of the same battle. When this game is over, I don't want to call it a game, but when this battle is over, we'll all go back to our own teams. And yep. Walsh and I will argue about uh, wages. And Liz Cheney and I will argue about probably everything. And <laughs> lots of us will argue about abortion. And we'll argue about climate change. But that's not the fight to have today. Today, the fight is only about democracy. And I know that's hard to get into people's brains because we didn't grow up thinking democracy itself would be at risk. Now we have to get that through our heads because this was the most important election in a generation. And so too will the next one be. It's such a, I love the cactus analogy um, because it's true. Uh, you don't need to, you actually shouldn't water a cactus every day, but no. you can't forget it exists. Correct. And that does seem to be what we take so much for granted here and that's why i think a huge opportunity has been missed vis-a-vis -vis, um the ways in which the american people have understood or not failed to understand what's happening in ukraine uh yes. again the work you did i i'm so grateful for it because as as an american um foreign policy or what's happening in the rest of the world is not something that that naturally comes to me or sorry interest in it is not what comes to me naturally because even though i pay attention uh probably as much well more than than most as do you uh we we aren't raised to think anything other than all that happens the only thing that matters is what happens in america you know right. i was talking to some people in australia and you know, they were talking about how they pay so much attention to what's happening here and, and um, uh, you know, what, what do Americans think of Australia? I'm like, we don't. <laughs> we Canadian, don't. I'm, I'm Canadian. Canadians ask me all the time, what do Americans think about Canada? I was like, no, nah, no, not so much. They, they just, know it exists, like probably. It. Somebody went to the Olympics once. Somebody went to Montreal sometime. It's benign. Yeah. They, it, don't, they don't think about it much. And, and I don't think, it, it isn't until situations like Ukraine arise that we see how incredibly dangerous that level of ignorance and lack of interest can be because, you know, Ali, it played out on so many different levels. One, most uh, basically, and certainly not most importantly, but, you know, in the context of our, our latest election was important. Part of the reason that high ga gas prices are so high is because of what's happening in Ukraine and right. is because of all of the illegal maneuvers that uh, Russia is making and Saudi Arabia as well in terms of manipulating mm -hmm. gas prices to uh, to undermine uh, the Biden administration. But it's, you know, it's <laughs> it's something that if it isn't explained in that way, then it, it again, it just becomes this exactly bad right. thing the Biden administration is doing. But much more importantly, and this is, again, why your reporting was so uh, crucial, is that you the fight in Ukraine is a fight for democracy everywhere. And if that domino falls, I, I'm not really sure what happens next. You're right. And, and Vladimir Zelensky, who was not a popular guy, a lot of people didn't support him. He was a satirist. People didn't think he, he could be taken seriously, shouldn't be a a president of a country where Russia is the adversary uh, thought to not be corrupt in a country that suffers from corruption. And a lot of people said, I think he's actually not corrupt, which is why he can't be our president because a, a non-corrupt guy can't. <laughs> I met all sorts of people all across Ukraine with 96 reasons about why they didn't vote for Volodymyr Zelensky, hmm. except he articulated what you just said. This is the front line of the battle for democracy. If you let this fall, we will lose it. So that's number one. Number two, we were talking about your interest in, in, in sort of understanding of foreign policy. It's an abstraction for most people. I don't think people are willfully ignorant. It's just an abstraction. I mean, right. when I in the two weeks before the invasion of Ukraine, I literally spent all my shows with maps of Ukraine showing everybody where it is, where it is in the grander scheme of things, what the countries are around it, what NATO is, because some of us remember, some of us don't remember why NATO was formed, what NATO was in the 70s, what it was in the 80s, how it expanded with the fall of the uh, Berlin Wall and the, the Iron Curtain, just to give people context. And then I went there, and when I first went, I went to Hungary, and then I went to Poland, then I went into Ukraine, and all I did was talk to mostly women and elderly people getting off of trains with their children at train stations hmm. to say, that's not abstract. Right. Everybody has a mother, a sister, a daughter, a grandmother and children. 
right? Everybody knows what that looks like. These people yep. have been on a train for 30 hours. And when you get on a train with your kids for 30 hours and you don't know where you're going, you, you don't take your fun stuff. You take strollers, you take carriers, you take food, you take that kind of stuff. They get off at a train station. There's feminine hygiene product. There's medication. There's antibiotics. There's sandwiches. There's uh, all, uh, SIM cards because your phone doesn't work. Right. Your credit cards don't work. There's nowhere to get money. Then you go through this room where you get all that kind of stuff. They take care of your health needs and your food needs and all that kind of stuff. Then you get to the other side and you have nowhere to go and you have no money for a cab and you have no house to stay in. Then they are matching you up with people who have volunteered to keep you or embassies who've come in and said, stay in this hotel till we get you a flight home. That's what war is. That's the abstraction that war is. It's not, I can tell you everything about every kind of missile and every kind of tank and every kind of airplane and all that kind of stuff, but that's the abstraction. That's, that's, that's game war. People war is what this is. And remember, all these people were doing were minding their own business. They had struggled for 20 years to build a democracy. It was deeply flawed. Ours is also flawed. Yes, it but, is. But things happened to them and they realized they were about to lose it. And so the men had to stay. And by the way, they mostly stayed willingly. I, I didn't meet a man of fighting age in Ukraine who said he was trying to get out. Mm -hmm. And they are fighting for their country and they are winning, ostensibly with our help, but they are winning. And so this is, I think every American should be looking at Ukraine, not saying, yeah, the good guys are winning because they are. But more importantly, they are fighting for their democracy the way we fought for our democracy once. And then the way we had a suffrage movement where we fought for a better democracy. And then we had a civil rights movement where we fought for a yet better democracy. Then we had Me Too, which was a fairer democracy. Then we had Black Lives Matter, which was also a, a, a more perfect union we were trying to figure out. We are a continuum just like they are. They're just earlier in it and the fights involve guns. Our we need to be inspired by them to say we can get to yet more perfect. I don't know if we'll ever get perfect in America, but let us be inspired by them. Let us be inspired by the women of Iran right now who've said, I've had it with this. I, I, I'm not taking this anymore. You're entirely out of touch with us. I want some rights. There are these nascent movements around the world that we as Americans, as leaders of this, should be encouraging and then learning from and saying, why don't we do this here? And in fairness, Mary, we have been doing it in America, right? There are real protests. We had five ballot measures about abortion this election, yeah. plus one in August in Kansas. All of them ended up supporting abortion rights in places like Kansas, Montana, and Kentucky, which mm -hmm. otherwise voted conservative across the board. That's we've right. got marches. We've got people fighting for rights. So I actually, despite the fact that we've been talking for almost 40 minutes about things that seem generally pessimistic, I am, I am not pessimistic right. about this. I actually believe we have enough inspire, inspiration around us and in us to solve this problem. Actually, uh, before the election, I was one of the few people who was optimistic huh. uh, about what was going to happen in the midterms. Anytime anybody said that we were going to lose the House really badly and probably the Senate, um, they now owe me a spa day for all of the stress that they put me through. Right. Um, but actually, I was so optimistic that I'm I'm a little disappointed <laughs> that we you didn't were more optimistic than the results actually <laughs> bore. But that's okay. I I think uh, there were, in fact, I think having a, a close margin in the House with the Republicans in charge is not necessarily not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but the way you put that is, it is inspiring and. I think if Americans could also look at all of the fighting uh, for democracy and for rights uh, that are going on, uh, if we could also look at that as, as, as a fight for us as well, um, I think the more engaged we are on that level, the better, because then perhaps it will put in, in a, a more enlightening context the fact that in this country, uh, the people fighting against rights is one of our two major political parties. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. And we've already had, I don't know how it's going to uh, shake down and, and experts tell me it's not something to worry about too much, but you've heard Kevin McCarthy and a number of Republicans say, um, you know, no more blank check to Ukraine. Yeah, I was actually, I'm glad you went there. I was going to ask right. you about that. Please say more because it, it is, yeah. whether what, regardless of what happens, it's alar it's alarming. It's alarming. And and so, so first of all, there are way more Republicans in the House who would not agree with that view. It's a very minority view. But 
Ukraine is a strategic partner for America. There's a reason we are supporting Ukraine, not just because we like Ukraine. And by the way, I'm of the view that you should just support countries that get invaded by other countries because that's what the whole point of the UN is. But yeah. there's more than that. Russia mm -hmm. is an expansionist adversary led by somebody who... Um, does not seem to share sort of this this global understanding of what our worldview is. So if you let people like that run roughshod, they 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 don't know what limits are, and they will continue to press those limits further and further. So and by the way, China's got a similar issue going on. So we actually have to take strong stands. And you're finding in the middle of this, Joe Biden telling the Chinese, "This is our red line. If you do this into Taiwan, we will be there to do something about it." So I do think that it is important to to think of these things holistically. This isn't Ukraine, which generally speaking, most of my viewers have never thought about unless they know somebody from Ukraine or have been right. there or are from there. You've never thought about, does not seem to be a place of much consequence. It's the poorest country um, in Europe or one of the poorest in Europe. This is a principle. This is an idea that, that we decided after World War II, we decided earlier in that by forming the League of Nations, but we decided after World War II with the United Nations that we as a, as a, as a group of nations do not agree uh, that a country can overtake another country against its will. And until recently, until Crimea, what you had was problems where uh, dictators and oppressors were in their own countries, right? So what, the, uh, what they did to the Rohingya, what the Syrians did to their own people, what the Libyans did to their own people, what the Afghans, uh, the Taliban did to their own people, what, the, what Saddam Hussein did to his own people. There's no mechanism in the world to deal with that whatsoever. Right. So for all the horrific things that the Syrians did, there is nothing that the United Nations can do except condemn it. But we actually exist to stop member nations from going into other member nations. And and the, the and Russia is a member of the Security Council of the United Nations. There needs to be real sanction. People like that need yeah. to be told, you will not trade with us. We will not buy your oil, which is why oil is expensive. Gas is expensive. We will put pressure on countries like India who continue to buy uh, Russian oil. We will do these things. So the energy secretary here, Jennifer Granholm, told me at one point, I interviewed her early on in this war, and she said, yeah, gas prices are high because we've made decisions about how we're going to treat Russia because we're going to cut off their major supply to foreign funds. But that's our cost for democracy. Americans need to understand it's not fair. It's not right that Joe Schmo, who's got nothing to do with any war and has no opinion on the matter, is now paying more for their gas because of democracy. But that's a democracy tax. It is what it is. I, I, I'm sad about it because I also pay more for gas, but I have to realize I'm part of something bigger. And, and we have to apply this to our own country with abortion rights, with voting rights, with, with Black Lives Matter, with Me Too, because what Me Too means in an economics to, to a guy like me is Women are going to be paid more or should be paid more for what they do and be treated more fairly in the workplace. Well, it's not a zero-sum game. That might mean some evening out of salaries. Democracy, freedom, justice, and liberty and equality cost us something. And if it costs you nothing, Mary, then it's just a slogan. You cannot stay, sit, stand there and say, I'm for women's rights. I'm for Black Lives Matters. I'm from Slava. I'm for Slava Ukraini. I'm for democracy. It's got to cost those of us who have privilege and control, who do not struggle to vote, who do not have to think about abortions, who do not um, have to uh, face discrimination, who get paid more than women who do the same thing in life, who are not likely to be killed by police when they get pulled over. It is not for us to just say we're on the right side. It is for us to say here in America and abroad, there will be some cost to us to make this a more just world. And I think the reward on the other side is going to be fantastic for all of us, including people like me with a great deal of privilege. I right. want a fairer world. That will be my, my, my reward. When the Ukrainians win, that will be my reward. When women are paid equally in this country, that will be my reward. When black people don't have to be scared about being pulled over by police, that will be my reward. I will personally, as Ali Velshi, gain nothing by these things, but I will live in a better world. And I think as Ali Velshi, I will gain because the world is better. And Ali, the, the idea that democracy as a zero sum game has been injected into our politics is one of the more dangerous yeah. uh, ideas along with the idea that uh, cruelty is somehow strength and a, a, a legitimate, um, strategy for getting elected to something right yep. and i think it's it's one of the things hopefully that will come out of this midterm is the idea that um democracy is fragile does need to be fought for and 
by the way, we're not really a democracy yet. You know, it's not only that we're not more perfect yet, we're not really a democracy yet. And it is only unless and until uh, we recalibrate in the ways you just suggested uh, that we can make it to the next level. And, you know, um, when Kevin McCarthy talks about not supporting Ukraine uh, and others in the party seem seem to be quite pro Putin and pro Russia, um, when they are allowed to pretend that uh, the problem is Antifa or Black Lives Matter and not the actual white domestic terrorists uh, right. that are the biggest problem in this country in terms of security right now, um, then it the task becomes harder. So I'm, I'm really concerned about the extent to which anti-democratic forces uh, become normalized uh, yes. over time. And how do you, how do you see that going forward? Because I, I, we started here, I think um, Donald announces his candidacy as if that's okay. And uh, a lot of the coverage is yeah. is to talk as about it's normal, it. as if it's a guy who's running for president. Yeah. And so think about what's happened in the last six months. We had a raid on Mar-a-Lago. We had people talking about civil war online. We had a guy in, I think it was Cincinnati, uh, attack an FBI office. We had uh, we've had various other smaller versions of this. We had a guy take a hammer to Paul Pelosi's head and Republicans joking about it. Uh, talking about normalizing uh, political violence. And in many of these cases, I think about the guy at the uh, at the FBI uh, building. It didn't work. But what happens if it did? What happens if an FBI agent got killed? What happens if an FBI agent gets into a, a, a shootout, as they, they do? It, it, it fuels this idea that we're at war with our government and these things that they call militias, the kind that tried to uh, kidnap the governor of Michigan. Imagine if that had happened. They'd kidnapped the governor of an American state and maybe killed her. There are no militias in America. You can't be a militia. It's against right. the law. If you are going, if you would like to enlist to help the government do whatever it has to do, you join the National Guard. That's all there is to it. The government can only activate the, the, the National Guard. You can't do this kind of stuff. Right. And so we have this, this rule of law that's being undermined. We have democracy that's being undermined. We have these world leaders like Putin, like Mohammed bin Salman, um, now like uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who are waiting for Donald Trump to be reelected because he's the best friend they ever had. And he got them to, got things out of them that, that he, they can't get out of Joe Biden. Yeah. So I do worry that we have to we're going to have to be more nuanced in our approach. And what, what this last election told me is that Americans are capable of it. But we are going to have to have these conversations and they can't feel like the sky is falling, but they have to feel more like what I think you just described. And that is we don't have our democracy yet. How exciting is that? Right. The Ukrainians would rather not have a war, but they really are excited about fighting for their democracy. They believe they want it. They're young. They are they are they're only 20 years old as a democracy. They want to win that democracy themselves. In our history, we think about some this something that happened in the 1770s. Maybe we think about the suffrage suffrage movement. Maybe we think about the Civil War movement and the excitement in those people who fought and ultimately won. We're there now. We are fighting for we're actually in this fight for our democracy in our lives we may achieve it, right? If we get all these, these things right. So I think that should energize people, which means 100% of people should be registered to vote. And if everybody, if only 50% are registered and they all help somebody else get registered, they will vote and they get involved and they go to their school board meetings where the book banning is happening. They run for school board. They run for city council. I learned about the value of democracy when I was 11 years old because my father immigrants. They were anti-apartheid activists. They'd moved to Canada. My father ran for office for the first time when I was 11 years old. I was his biggest campaigner. And election night, the polls closed at eight o'clock. My dad and I had been working all day, you know, being at places where people were getting on buses and subways and things like that. This was in Toronto. Went home to get change, get in the car. We're almost at the campaign office. It's eight o'clock. We turn on the radio. The announcer says the polls are closed across the country, far too early to tell results, except in one constituency, which is the one my dad was running in. And they declared that he had been defeated. They didn't use his name. They just said that the other guy had been elected. And I was devastated. Yeah. I said, I can't believe we lost. And my dad had the smirk on his face. And he said, of course we lost. And I said, what do you mean? He said, we were never going to win. And I said, then why did you run? He said, because we could. And because I'm not getting arrested tomorrow. <laughs> and because people had a chance to support me. And one day they will. And I 
I learned about democracy in that moment. And that to me is the end of the story. The end of the story is that my dad ran again and he won and he became the first South Asian elected to any office, uh, that level of office anywhere in Canada. He made the history, but the history that he made was not nearly as important to me as the lesson I learned on that night in, in, when I was 11 years old. And that is democracy is a participatory pro process of civil society in which you do it for the right reasons. You walk away when you've lost and you, 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 you lick your wounds and you come back and do it again, but you respect that process and you make it better. That is, that lesson is the one that I now try and take forward in America. I love that story. Uh, especially in the aftermath of some election results last week that, that have some people saying, you know, let's just, uh, instead of investing in Florida, let's put our money elsewhere. And again, I understand, be thanks to uh, the Roberts Court uh, and Citizens United and uh, the uh, total evisceration of the uh, Voting Rights Act, um, we do need to make strategic decisions. So that's a conversation for the uh, another time, because if that problem were fixed, yeah then, you know, it would be a different issue entirely. But I'm with you. You, you fight every fight for the future because, right. you know, if, if there's a, say, plus 40 Republican district in a rural Georgia or Virginia um, and nobody ever runs and the, the, the Republican gets runs un uncontested every single time. Then you're not a democracy. Because those voters who don't want to support that, anywhere that there is an acclamation and a single candidate breaks my heart. Yes. Let people have their choices. Be that person who gives. My father was a complete sacrificial lamb, but he said, I will give people something to vote for. And a lot of people voted for him. They Just not enough. Look right. at Lauren Boebert in Colorado. She will probably prevail, but someone came damn close because mm -hmm. they gave the voters a choice. Someone ran against Marjorie Taylor Greene. Didn't get a ton of votes, but he right. gave somebody something to vote for. Last time she didn't run against somebody. So that's right. These are participation in the process is not about winning. It's not about beating the other guys. It's about committing to taking care of that little cactus that you have. And it's also about, uh, yes, giving people a choice, but educating them, giving them information they wouldn't otherwise have. Correct. And explaining that some candidates, uh, are holding positions that are absolutely antithetical to a healthy democracy. Yeah. And quite honestly, I, you know, uh, I'm, I'm hard pressed at this point to come up with any Republican quote unquote policies that help, help their constituents at all. Cause they're uh, not a policy oriented party right now. They once were right, but they're not. The, the, and they had great policies in the past, by the way. They came up with the Environmental Protection Agency. They, they came Nixon. up with all sorts of things. That, and by the way, people didn't agree with some of them at the time. But the bottom line is it was a thinking policy party that put white papers together and had testimony mm -hmm. and did research and used the great offices of the United States government to say, how do we protect our public lands and how do we do those kinds of things? They just don't do that anymore. They wait to see what no. Donald Trump thinks the policy should be. And it generally seems to be about immigration and, 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 and weird things like that. Look, we have a real immigration problem in this country, Mary. We can solve it with some really good debate. We know what the best practices are, but we don't. All we talk about is the southern border and people getting over the border and rapists and all this kind of stuff. Meanwhile, we have a 3.7% unemployment rate. You know what we need? Immigrants. Yes, That's how do. your prices are going to come down. We, have, we don't have enough people to fill the jobs in this country. No, and, and it's such an opportunity. Uh, and it's something I've never understood. We are obviously a country of immigrants. And uh, it it's, it's just mystifies me that that has become something that the right fights against and pretend isn't unless, of course, you know, you're white. And then it's, it's fine. It's fine. But they also didn't used to fight about that. They were no. actually Republican presidents who thought immigration, particularly from the southern border, was a very healthy thing from America. There are governors all through the West who say, when you stop that flow of people from the, your lettuce is going to be more expensive. Your oranges are going to be more expensive. We need these workers. But we've just decided that's an easy out. And, and Donald Trump owned that one. And, and, and it's become a mantra for Republicans that just doesn't make economic sense. Yeah. And it's. I, I'm not entirely sure the Democrats have done a good enough job of creating a counter. Uh, well, they nope. haven't. They have You're not. Absolutely right. <laughs> so that's something else that they can work on. I feel like we have, we have, uh, you know, I've been pulling my punches uh, in terms of the, uh, sorry, the Democratic Party, uh, because when you're in a situation where 
only one party believes in democracy. You don't want to undermine that party. It's by it's a binary choice at the moment. Right. I, I need it to not be a binary choice. It's not healthy for any of us where you can you have to say you have to support the Democrats because they're the pro democracy party. I, I yeah. Right now it's binary. But I think we have an opportunity uh, to start uh, challenging the Democratic Party to be better uh, on some things, to make a better case. Um, and I, I know our time is almost up, so I have a couple of quick questions. One, well, maybe not so quick, but, you know, <laughs> do your best. Um, one, one deep concern is that the the... One of the, the best mechanisms for the normalization of, of anti-democratic, pro-autocracy, uh, dangerous uh, behavior is the failures of accountability. Um, how do we move forward knowing that there are active seditionists serving in our government and um, <laughs> the head of an insurrection who is still the leader of one of our two Republican parties? It's it. It seems to be getting less and less tenable. Uh, and the longer it goes on, the more opportunity there is to kind of fill the vacuum with, well, I guess it's just not that big a deal. Yeah. Uh, and I think that one's on us. And I say us being the media, right? We have to uh, tell Americans what is happening without platforming people, right? Without making it feel like you're getting equal time from them. We have to characterize what uh, Donald Trump and others in his clown car are saying and what they want to do. And more importantly, and I think you alluded to this earlier, it's it's dangerous to make this too much about Donald Trump. Yes. Because it, it's in the same way that you can't blame Joe Biden for inflation around the world, there are Donald Trumpian people all around the world who are getting elected and reelected and coming back into office again. Benjamin Netanyahu reelected in Israel as a criminal. Like it's kind of amazing. Mohammed bin Salman, who the world has determined, uh, you know, was behind the the execution of an American citizen who was mildly critical, by the way. Jamal Khashoggi wasn't some big government critic. He was a pro Saudi guy who wanted his government to be better. They're executing the protesters in Iran. They are, you can't say the word war in Russia, right? There are all sorts of people around the world who are like this. It's not Donald Trump. Donald Trump is just a remarkable message bearer. bearer. So we have got to understand the nuance of what anti-democracy means. I have been pleading with my Republican friends, and they all tell me that I'm wrong in thinking that there's some possibility of taking these defectors or these people like Liz Cheney and, and rebuilding a party right now. So that the only option for... Republicans with conservative views is actually to vote for Democrats for the time being until things stabilize and some party rises out of the ashes. So I, I am I, I don't know what success looks like right now, but I do know that it it, it, it it resides in protecting the vote, being exercising that vote and being involved in civil society. Right. People who get involved. I spoke to a woman, a Muslim woman who ran in Georgia. She's the first Muslim and Palestinian elected in the Georgia state legislature. And it came about because she had attended some meeting about getting people to run for office. And someone interviewed her and she was talking about the fact that she was preparing to run a marathon. And somehow there was a miscommunication and it sounded like she was preparing to run. And that became the article. And she started getting Facebook and LinkedIn things about, yeah, you should run. Yeah, you should run. And she had never thought about that. And she ran and she won. Wow. That's the beauty of American democracy. This Palestinian yeah. woman who wears a hijab is now a member of the state legislature because someone mistakenly said she was running for politics. That's how easy it is to actually get involved. But it's easier to go to your school board meeting. It's easier yeah. to go to your parents' meeting. It's easier to go to your city council meeting and just show up and let those people know you're holding them to account. You as voters are holding them to account. But it's also on us as media to hold them to account all the time. That should be our primary job, not to call people on and say, tell me your view about this. Tell me your view about this. It's the, you are a member of a party who did this. You voted for that. I need you to explain that to me. Mm -hmm. And it, it's hard because those people don't want to come on your show as guests again, because they feel like you took them on. Right. But that is our job. My job is no longer a job. Mary, it's a calling. I have to do that or I fail. And if I fail, I fail the American people. And if I fail the American people, we fail democracy. That's such a great way of, of looking at it uh, because it it personalizes the situation in which we find ourselves. This is this is not uh, this is not cut and dried. This is not 
um, some abstraction. This yeah. is our lives. This is our future. Right. It's the future of our children. It's the future of people we care about. It's the future of people we don't particularly care about. Correct. Uh, right. Share our country and get a vote. Yeah. Uh, so one more thing we, before we started, uh, I asked if you had any hobbies and, um, I, I, I love the fact that you have this particular hobby and I know you've been kind of busy. Like I'm, I'm wondering, forget about hobbies. Have you slept in the last six years? Right. That would actually be my main hobby if I could get to it. <laughs> if you could get to sleeping. So assuming you could sleep and assuming things chill out a little bit, um, any, any, uh, plans to get back up in the air? Uh, anytime I soon? literally was two days away from my pilot's license, two days away. I'd completed oh, all no. of my training. I had completed all the stuff. And when you fly, because you're before the flight schools don't ever want to have you fail, right. they, you, you fly basically the test with your pilot, your instructor, mm -hmm. then you file, fly it with the chief instructor till they are convinced you are not going to fail your test. And then you schedule your, so you don't schedule it until you're going to fail, even though the FAA tries very hard to fail you because, because they should, right? It's a safety right, issue. They want, they, they make you do things. They basically fatigue you. If you haven't failed the test after two hours in the air, they'll keep you on for another half an hour, another half an hour till you're just fatigued and you forget something. But I was yeah. ready to go. And it was, uh, it was right before the uh, 2020 elections and a hurricane came and I cover hurricanes, as you know. Yes. And I just knew because we were so close to the election cycle that it was my last week. If I wasn't able to do that license that week, I was going to get on the trail, travel around the country, and it wasn't going to happen. And all I had was that one week and a hurricane came. And I uh, I had to cancel my my uh, flight appointment and that the rest is history, right? That, that election became uh, the most contested election we've had in our history and I never got off the road. So one day I dream about it. I, I only dream when I sleep and I don't sleep that much, but when I dream, when I sleep, I dream and I dream about flying. When you next hear that I'm in a plane, it means the world's a better place and we're moving toward democracy. So I could take two hours and, uh, and go up above. And I, and I love that as a benchmark. Um, and as, you know, I'm very fond of uh, people who fly and aspire to fly. So uh, I, I absolutely hope that for you. Um, Allie, this has been such a pleasure. I, again, I'm so grateful for everything you do, Thank have you. done, continue to do. Uh, I love that you consider your work a calling. Um, we, need, we need more people like you in the media. So Allie Velshi, thank you for everything. We need more people like you. And this is a tribute to the American people who also decided their, their business, their existence is a calling. So we're all in this one together. Awesome. Thanks, Allie. See you, Mary. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I just had the best time. Um, Thank you to Ellie Belshi. What a guy. Uh, seriously, I, I've admired him for a very long time. And so to have him come on to spend so much time with us is, is really an honor. Uh, and I, I really appreciate it. So um, thanks for your comments and for hanging in there uh, with us tonight. Um, we will be back, the Nerd Avengers and I, next Tuesday for our uh regular Nerd Avenger show. That's Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. That's youtube.com slash Politicon. And uh, next, is next Thursday Thanksgiving? I think it might be. I'm not entirely sure what the show is going to be. There will be one. I'm just not entirely sure what it's going to look like, but that's also going to be at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, youtube.com slash Politicon. And when you are on Politicon's youtube page please subscribe doesn't cost anything uh we just want more people knowing uh about the show and getting the word out uh while you're there you can also like the episode leave a comment click on that bell and that way you will be sure to be alerted anytime a new episode drops uh and what else um yep of course you can listen to this in podcast form anywhere you get your podcasts uh and if you're on Apple, please do leave us a five-star review because it helps other people find the show. And that is a goal, uh, obviously. And don't forget, we are having our very first uh, Mary Trump show live on stage 
on Monday, December 19th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific. That's it at Dynasty Typewriter in Los Angeles. And uh, fellow Nerd Avengers, uh, Jen Taub and Waj Ali will be joining me on stage along with a special local guest, uh, which will, will be a surprise. And I think that is it. Um, once again, thank you to Ali and thank you to all of you for being here. Um, I look forward to seeing you next Tuesday. Have a great weekend. And in the meantime, please stay safe and be kind. <laughs>